0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: In this episode, John sits down with Ibrahim Hamidi, Senior Diplomatic Editor for Shark al to discuss the Syrian conflict. Then, John, Will, and I discuss Russia's role in the Middle East— We'll close with a meze on how rap is being used as a tool for de radicalization.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We're talking today with Ibrahim Hamidi. He is senior diplomatic editor at a Sharqalosa newspaper in London. He's had that job for a couple of years. I first met Ibrahim about 20 years ago when he was writing for the pan-Arab newspaper Al-Hayat, also based in London, although Ibrahim was based in Syria. It was very hard in those days to understand anything about Syria And most of what I came to understand I learned through reading Ibrahim's article. So Ibrahim, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: Thank you so much, John. It's really great to talk to you and to see you again. We are
0: eight years into this very bloody Syrian civil war and there's all kinds of diplomatic rubble. We had a Friends of Syria group in 2012 that gave way to talks in Vienna and then Geneva and then a set of talks in Astana. Is there still any movement going on diplomatic talks? Do diplomatic talks matter? And where do they matter?
2: It is, in a way, nice coincidence that as we speak today, 23rd of September 2019, the UN Special Envoy for Syria, Gar Bederson, announced that the Syrian regime, the Syrian government, and the opposition uh, have reached an agreement about forming constitutional committee to do constitutional reforms according to uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2254. So that is a bit significant in terms of political process because that is the first time that the Syrian government, the Syrian regime and the opposition uh, to reach uh, a common understanding. We all remember, we all know that the regime always considered all opposition as terrorist organizations or as terrorist elements. So that is the first time that, in a way, politically, symbolically, that the regime recognizes that there is a political opposition and there is a need for constitutional reforms.
0: Do you think that the opposition has leverage to get things from the government, given how the government has been consolidating control over much of the country?
2: As you said i've worked in syria for so long my understanding we are as analysts or as experts we are in dilemma yes it's very hard to push the regime to make any political any meaningful political concession but at the same time symbolically that the regime to agree to sit with the opposition The same table to discuss how you do better, how you you reform the Syrian constitution is symbolic. And we should not underestimate that.
0: And I mean, given that the fight is really with violent groups near Idlib at this point, can the opposition speak on the behalf of the groups that are fighting? Or is the opposition a sort of third group civil society that, that really isn't even connected to ending the fighting?
2: You know, yeah, that's very uh, interesting question. I mean, one of the paradoxes in the Syrian uh, uh, war in the last eight years is that there is disconnect between the political opposition and what's happening on the ground. So, ironically enough, as you said, now the opposition control 10% in northwest of Syria. Most of them are Islamists, and they are not really represented in the a political opposition that is going to sit with the regime to discuss political reforms. The other point is that in northeast of Syria, we have almost 30% of Syrian territory is controlled by SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, supported by the Americans. And those people, the SDF, are not part of the political process, and they are not part and they are not represented in the Constitutional Committee, which was form today. So there is a complete disconnect between the political process and the reality.
0: But one of the other realities that we're seeing is that the rest of the world, and certainly the Arab world, is beginning to get ready to re-engage with the Assad government, that the ostracization, the, the sort of distance that we saw come in at the beginning of the war seems to be giving way. The Arab states seem to be intent on normalizing relations with Syria. Is this just the process of time for the Assad government to be welcomed back into the Arab world and welcomed back into the community of
2: nations? If it was up to some or many Arab governments, I think they would have normalized with the regime, with Damascus a few months ago. We all remember last December, there was big push by some Arab countries to normalize with Damascus. We saw the former Sudanese President Omar bashir visiting Damascus. We saw the Emirati opening the embassy in Damascus, Bahraini opening their embassy in Damascus, and the mood by then, December last year, January this year, that, okay, the game is over, the regime is winning, and the Arab countries are going to normalize collectively through the Arab League and on bilateral tracks. What happened by then was actually the American administration, Washington, made a lot of pressure on some Arab countries to stop the normalization process. The Trump administration, they believe uh, that only they have a few uh, tools to influence the war in Syria, to influence the political process in Syria. They have the sanctions. They have the normalization and the legitimacy of the Syrian government. So now they believe the only way to push the regime or the Russians to make a meaningful political concession is by keeping the pressure on Damascus.
0: Do you think the Trump administration really has made this serious political future into a priority? No. Does that matter?
2: I mean, after the Russian intervention, I mean, in in September 2015, there is no American policy For Syria. So now there is, in a way, the way the American administration looks at Syria is from, as a proxy or as a part of the American policy uh, vis-a-vis Iran or the American policy vis-a-vis fighting ISIS.
0: But you've watched diplomacy even more closely than I have over the years. Diplomacy is not just punish, punish, punish. It's presenting choices to people and saying, if you don't do this. This will happen. If you do do this, this will happen. And it seems to me implicit in the argument the U.S. is pressuring the Syrian government has to be a guarantee that if the government complies, if they engage with the opposition, if if all sorts of political things happen, then the United States would would open up opportunities for reconstruction assistance and all sorts of other things. Is that? part of this deal as well, that the United States might actually have a different policy towards Syrian
2: reconstruction
0: if the government behaved differently?
2: I don't see that. But, you know, things for Washington now is black and white. I mean, that is related to Syria and, and to other issues in the region. So what we're seeing is now just Washington is freezing all normalization process with Damascus. They're freezing all money for reconstruction in Damascus. I did not hear of any incentives that uh, Washington offered to Damascus or to Moscow.
0: It seems to me to be effective. You can't just punish and punish and punish. There has to be an alternative that if they comply, the punishment will stop and and perhaps the rewards will begin. And it sounds to me like you're saying that this is a policy that only has a stick and there's not a contemplation of a carrot.
2: What I hear from Western and European American diplomats and officials is that actually, as I said, after 2015, the Russian military intervention, but mainly after in the last two three years, actually the Americans, they do not really care about really negotiating with Damascus. They prefer to talk with Moscow. And even the Europeans, as you know, I mean, the French have established Two plus two dialogue with Moscow, the two ministers of defense and ministers of foreign affairs. The Turks have hosted a four-way summit, Russia, uh, uh, Germany, France, Turkey. Uh, I mean, the Americans are talking with Russia. Uh, I mean, Pompeo was uh, in Moscow, I think, last May. Trump met with uh, Putin twice. And even the British, I mean, there was some meeting between former Prime Minister May and Putin in Osaka on the margin of that G20 summit in right. Japan. Most of the countries now, they believe, okay, the only way is not to talk to Damascus, actually to talk to Russia. So what? this is what they're saying. They say, okay, if you if you push for political settlement, if you push for Iran to be out or to reduce the Iranian influence, we are willing, we are happy to put money in the reconstruction to push for normalization between Arab countries and Damascus, and to give some legitimacy to the Syrian government in Damascus. So, once again, people would like to talk to Moscow rather than talking to Damascus.
0: What do you think Moscow's longer-term ambitions are in Syria and Levant?
2: Uh, it's interesting. I, I will be, by the way, I will be tomorrow in Moscow. I will meet some Russian officials trying to understand the Russian uh, policy on Syria. But my understanding is that what Russia wants is, A, For them, it's geopolitical. It's for them, they lost Iraq, they lost Libya. They believe the West failed in Iraq and Libya. And they did not want to lose Syria because Syria always been part of the Russian or Soviet Union orbit the last 30, 40, 50 years. B, definitely they didn't want to see any regime change in Damascus. Because they hate the regime change policy in the least, and maybe because that might have an effect on global affairs. Three, they always I was, as I said, as you said, I've, been, I've worked in Damascus for so long for 22 years. The Russians and the Soviets always wanted to have military bases in Syria, on the Mediterranean Sea and on west of Syria. And always Damascus refused. And now the war in Syria gave Moscow a golden opportunity to have two military bases, the first time ever to have a military base on Mediterranean Sea, and they achieved that. And, of course, the war in Syria gave the military establishment in Moscow to try new military equipments. And we have, I'm sure we all heard what the Minister of Defense of Russia yesterday he said. He said they tried 300 new kinds of weapons in Syria, and the fourth point is that for them Syria was the only place and if they've lost Syria they would have lost the whole Middle East and now they are projecting power in Middle East through Syria and they are using Syria to to improve ties with the rest of the Arab world.
0: So as we look at the multilateral negotiations over Syria, there's been an effort to bring together the Iranians and the Turks and the Russians. It sounds to me like you're saying the Russians are the ones who matter and Turkey and Iran are going to have to accommodate themselves to, uh, to what the Russians are gonna want.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Just, I mean, it's symbolic. I mean, last week we had the trilateral summit in Ankara between Iran, Turkish, Iranian, Turkish, Russian president. That was the fifth summit between right. the three leaders. So, definitely, what matters when it comes to Syria is Moscow. At least, definitely, Russia is the main player in Syria.
0: Let me ask a final question. It's a hard one. I mean, you're a Syrian. You've seen your country go through all kinds of trials and tribulations long before this war broke out. What do you think the reconstruction of Syria is going to look like?
2: Here, I'll be a bit emotional because I'm, I speak more maybe as a Syrian.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, when the whole Syria-Arab spring, the whole war, the whole demonstration started, the hopes were, I mean, the, the expectations were very high, very high hopes. But it's unfortunate. Now, after seven years, now we have five armies are involved in Syria, the Americans, the Turks, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Israelis. Syria is divided for three zones, of influence. I mean, most of the Syrian infrastructure has been destroyed. It's it's very sad for me to say. Actually, I don't see Syria being reconstructed soon. Syria will be just sort of failed state for a long time to come. Even I mean, even if some countries, Europeans, uh, Gulf countries, would like to contribute in reconstruction in Syria. I think they do not have the money anymore because there are many crises in the whole Middle East and in the world. According to the World Bank, I think what we're talking about 250 billion US dollars, the cost of the reconstruction. The Syrian economy has lost already around the cost of the war in the last eight years, minimum of 400 billion US dollars. And I don't see... I don't see that money coming to Syria. So Syria Syria, and the Syrians are going to suffer for a long, long time. Maybe there will be reconstruction, but the reconstruction is going to be selective reconstruction that will be used for social, social engineering. And then after five, ten years, we will see a country completely, we will see Syria completely different to Syria that we know that you know, you visited, and that I know when I was there.
0: Ibrahim, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your your understanding and insights.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Up next, a discussion on Russia in the region. Here we are back around the table for another discussion. Today we're going to focus on Russian diplomacy. Ibrahim Hamidi who we just heard, mentioned Russia is holding most of the cards when it comes to Syrian negotiations. I think today we want to figure out how is Russia working with the Middle East, working inside of the Middle East, and building these diplomatic relationships.
0: And of course, the first key to Russian success is the soft bigotry of low expectations. They're not trying to do a lot. They're not trying to reform societies. They're trying to prevent things from happening. But in many ways, they have much less of a view than the United States about what they're actually trying to make happen. I think that's one of the things Ibrahim was concerned about—that the Russians prevented the regime from tottering, but the
3: Russians aren't committed to anything about Syrian reconstruction. I think that point is is interesting, right? The timing of when Russia intervened, which is almost exactly four years ago, was at a time when. By their own estimations, the regime was just weeks from falling and they managed to completely turn the tide of the uh, Syrian conflict. So even with a relatively minor intervention, they had a huge strategic effect on the an impact on the conflict. So, so I think that's one case of Putin being a master really at, at seizing strategic opportunities as they open up.
1: Well, I think the Syrian intervention is interesting not because of, you know, it shows how capable Putin is at at seizing opportunities, but because it reflects Russia's core interest when it comes to engaging in the Middle East. One of them is stability. It's the status quo. Russia, as part of the U.N. Security Council, voted to allow for international intervention in Libya with Gaddafi. And look at what that turned out. You know, it's chaotic. So I think when they looked at Syria, they said here's an opportunity for us to stabilize this country. Russia, in my opinion, is concerned about that, not just for other countries and creating a, a stable environment for them to operate in, but because they don't want people to consider internal regime change in Russia either.
3: And I think that domestic part of it is is important when thinking about what Russia's trying to achieve by intervening in the Middle East. I mean, Putin has depicted Chechnya and, and other kind of Muslim rebels inside Russia as the same kind of Sunni jihadists like those in, in the Middle East. And so I think part of it is to prevent the emergence of opposition forces within Russia. And so it's quite easy then for him to a- appeal to Middle Eastern governments by saying, sort of these are challenges we face, these are challenges you face, um, we're fighting the same thing, we will help you, we will restore the status quo or defend the status quo
0: at a time when the United States keeps saying, well, you we have to open up the politics, you have to engage with people, maybe there are good Islamists and bad Islamists, the view of these governments is anybody fighting against us is, by definition, bad. And the Russians see that, and the Americans are trying to open the door to instability. And for a lot of Middle Eastern governments, not just Bashar al-Assad, but Abed Fattah al Hassisi in Egypt and others, uh, and even in Saudi Arabia, the sense is the Russians understand the threat, and the Americans are naive about the threat.
1: Yeah, I actually think Russia's ability to kind of play multiple sides, their ability to work and negotiate with Iranians and Saudis at the same time, their ability to do the same in Israel. I think it goes back to your point about they're not asking for the world when it comes to their help, when it comes to military assistance. They're willing to have limited, a limited scope and limited expectations.
3: I think that's another key part of Russia's diplomatic strategy for the Middle East: is it is able to talk to, or have a relationship with both Iran and Israel at the same time. It can talk to Hezbollah. It can talk to various actors in the Libyan conflict as well, um, the GNA and the LNA. And so I think it's it's a case of sort of not choosing who they stick with and being able to, in some ways, play these different powers off against each other as they compete for Russian favor.
0: And in many ways, that's what the Chinese are also doing in the Middle East. Ultimately, the Russian bet is your society doesn't have to undergo dramatic change to be stable. The Chinese bet is your society can grow economically and not undergo radical change. The US bet for more than 70 years has been economic, social, and political change all marched together hand in hand. As sitting governments are increasingly wondering whether they're better off siding with the Russians and the Chinese. or using the Russians and the Chinese to hold off the United States, because certainly after 2011 in the Arab Spring, there's a sense the United States is opening the doors to chaos.
1: And as Russia pursues its kind of host of interest in the Middle East, they're facing challenges doing this as well. So you mentioned kind of their economic ability, but unlike China, which has a lot more muscle behind it economically, Russia actually isn't a huge economy. So when we're talking about scale, China is able to make larger economic promises than Russia is.
0: I think the, my recollection is the Russian economy is about the size of Spain and smaller than Italy. It's just not a global power in the same way.
1: If you ask a Russian person, I think they they strongly disagree, right? They remember and, and kind of envision what it was like to be the Soviet Union. And I, I think part of what Putin is trying to do, part of the the public image of these relationships is look, Russia is a global power, look at all these interests we can pursue in the Middle East, and look at our abilities in in solving conflicts. That's that's part of the public face of this. But I completely agree. Russia doesn't have the the muscle, the economic muscle to really make these changes and i don't think they have the military muscle to engage in conflicts in in the way that the united states could potentially be able to
0: the imperial memory is there the imperial capability is no longer there
3: and if you look at sort of successes that russia can kind of chalk up i mean beyond syria it's sort of difficult to to say these are really strong cases of Russian diplomacy succeeding. I mean, they're getting involved, I think, in, in various conflicts in, in Libya, as I mentioned before. They're trying to get involved in the demarcation of the border between Israel and and Lebanon. They're, they're trying to sell weapons to lots of people and, and I think made some foray into the Gulf dispute between Qatar and, on one side and, and Saudi Arabia and the UAE on the other. But there's not very much to show for it, I think.
1: One of their kind of more recent potential successes is simply selling more weapons to Turkey as Turkey kind of decides whether it wants to uh, shift away from the United States. And again, the expectations and requirements that they place on countries, or we place on countries when we sell them weapons, and shift to Russia um, as a potential supplier of weapons.
0: And Turkey is a great success for Russia because it's a way to, to begin to pick apart the NATO alliance, which was created to contain the Soviet Union. And Russia has was very alarmed by the expansion of NATO, the ability to begin to pick off countries like Turkey, um, creating more distance between Turkey and the United States, fits into a Russian strategy of escaping American hegemony.
1: So what do we think Russia is actually hoping to gain out of this, out of their their increased engagements, diplomatic, economic, soft power engagements with the Middle East? What would be their goal? I
0: think... Russia's trying to demonstrate that they're relevant everywhere, and to the extent that they can blunt the U.S. running the table on regions, that's their benefit. The fact is, there was a while in the late 1990s when every country in the Middle East either had a positive relationship with the United States or was seeking to create a positive relationship with the Middle East. That's not the world that the Soviet Union tried to create. That's not the world that, that Russia feels confident and comfortable in, a world with a lot more chaos. A world where people don't look down in terms of culture, in terms of of rights, in terms of politics on
3: Russia, where Russia is a player. That's all the world Russia is trying to create. And I think for Middle Eastern states, there are real questions about if Russia is able to Carry out its promises and fulfil its promises. If you look at some of the agreements, even in terms of Syria, which is seen as Russia's great diplomatic success, Russia has not abided by its promises to Russia. Uh, sorry, to to Turkey in relation to Idlib. and The fact that it resumed the the regime offensive on Idlib in southern Syria, it has not kept its its promises with Israel in terms of keeping Iran backed proxies uh, a certain distance away from the Israeli border. So I think. Middle Eastern countries might be attracted um, to, to the sort of vision that Russia is proposing, but there are probably questions about whether it can, it can deliver.
1: Yeah. And on that note, um, I think that's where we're going to end this conversation today. Now, a meze on radicalization and rap.
3: A man in his late 20s stands in an empty parking lot in northern Lebanon. He's wearing a beanie and he has a thick beard. He looks directly into the camera and starts to rap. But he's rapping about Islam. El Raas, who performs in both literary Arabic and Lebanese dialect, is part of a counter-radicalism rap movement. These rappers use music to address religious and social issues that affect at-risk youths in Lebanese border towns and elsewhere. <laughs> The movement started to gain momentum around 2013, but in recent years it's really exploded. It emerged as a counter-narrative to a wave of violent rap that was spreading the other side of the border in Syria. Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group encouraged Western rappers who converted to Islam to use their music as a recruitment tool. That violent genre of rap is often called jihadi rap, or jihadi cool. But while jihadi rap lives in the shadows, its reactionary counterpart seeks the spotlight. These rappers tackle radicalization head-on and aim to build a connection between Islam and youth culture. Like El Ras, these new rappers are empathetic to young people's struggles. El Ras discusses the link between social immobility and extremism in Beirut Volcano. Another rapper, Syrian-Filipino Chino has a song, Ballad of an Exodus, which explores the disenfranchisement that comes from displacement and discrimination. Take these rappers argue that the real Islam provides solace and its deviations provoke conflict. They're reaching out to new, often disillusioned Muslim audiences through international tours and through concerts in border towns. They say that the rage these young people feel is understandable, but it must not become consuming.
0: The ones
2: become blasphemous. Take the stories and become ambassadors.
0: Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSISMideast.